Welcome to Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. In this podcast, I chat to athletes, coaches, and industry professionals about their sporting journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. Guests range from Olympians to the everyday lover of sport, but the message stays the same. There is so much more to sport than what meets the eye. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you don't miss the release of each new episode. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. I'd love to hear from you. Today, I'm coming to you with such an incredible guest. Someone who has inspired me since I was a teenager for not only her sporting achievements, but also what she achieved before she became a Paralympian and world champion. Carol Cook started off as a seven-year-old who had a dream of representing her country at the Olympics. In this episode, Carol takes us through her journey through her early sporting career in Canada, her MS diagnosis and her journey through rowing and then on to becoming a nine-time world champion in cycling. Carol is truly inspiring and I couldn't help but ask her more and more questions. So part two will be released next Monday. Make sure you are following wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss the drop of that episode. Let's get into it. So like we, we can go back to, I guess, like young Carol, you said your first love was swimming, but there was a sport that you did before that and it was gymnastics. What was it about gymnastics that you liked? Oh, look, I think my my mum had both my sister and I in, you know, tap and ballet and baton twirling and acrobats, but I really took to the acrobats. I just loved doing cartwheels and somersaults and that kind of led me in that direction to gymnastics. And then I guess I was about seven when I saw my first Olympic Games and it would have been in Mexico. And I watched the gymnastics, of course. That's all I was interested in. Didn't, didn't, didn't realize there were any other sports other than gymnastics, even though my mom put us in swimming lessons and whatnot. Uh, but no, it was all gymnastics. And yeah, and that was like, from that point on, it was like, oh, I was going to go to the Olympics and be a gymnast for mm-hmm. Canada. I was going to go and represent, you know. And so at nine... It was, it was funny because I was doing gymnastics even in kindergarten and our, the principal at our, at our primary school, he was the gymnastics coach as well. I remember his name, Mr. Orrit, Thomas <laughs> J. Orrit. And um, he saw me at, I think it was recess or lunchtime doing cartwheels outside. And he came into our um, kindergarten class. I, was, I would have been only five. And he said, oh, he said, do you want to come in and join the gymnastics group I'm like yeah like this is cool I'm going to be with the big kids you know who are all seven eight nine (laughs) and um so kind of the love of that grew from there and then of course the Olympics watching the Olympics on TV um but at nine my best friend Sharon and I we decided we were going to try out for an elite gymnastics club called the Winstonettes and so we had to go and you had and we had to register and so mom phoned up and registered me and I went with um, Sharon's mom drove us you had to go up to this table to you know get your name ticked off but then right then and there they put you on against the wall to measure your height and made you stand on scales and so this would have been in 1970 right and so Sharon went up first and she was the petitest little tiniest thing in the world and I must say, she was a very good gymnast, but she, you know, they measured her height and her weight and off she went. And she's like, I'll see you in there as she went through the door. And so I go up and tick my name off, put me on the, against the wall and then put me on the scales. And the lady looks at me and goes, no, you're too fat for gymnastics. Gosh. And wouldn't let me go in. Wouldn't even let me go in to show them what I could do. And it was like, what? Anyway, I had to wait outside while Sharon did her tryout and wait for her to finish and then drive home with her mom and I remember running in the back door and just slamming the door and into my bedroom and just burst into tears and my mom I think she was coming in to give me hell for slamming doors (laughs) and she saw me crying and and asked me what the problem was and and I told her what had happened and the first really good lesson I think I ever learned was that day and she said look 
She said, if you want to do gymnastics, then keep doing it. Don't let anybody tell you that, you know, you're not good enough for anything. Just if you like it and you like, love it and you want to keep doing it, I'm behind you 100%, just keep doing it. But if you, you know, if you really want to go to the Olympics, maybe try another sport. Hmm. And it was like, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. It was like learning to think outside the square right then and there at the age of nine. And I went, what? Like, what do you mean try another sport? She said, well, there's lots of sports at the Olympics. So maybe try something else. She said, you like swimming? Maybe try that. And it was a year later when I was 10, when I joined my first swim club. So oh my gosh, it was, you know, it was like, oh, wow. I kept doing gymnastics. In fact, <laughs> I did gymnastics right through into high school and, you know, was on the high school gymnastics team. Not that I was any good. And I mean, yes, my body shape is not that of a gymnast. But at nine, I didn't need to hear I was too fat. Mm. You know? Unfortunately, that kind of followed me through no matter what sport I did growing up that I was too fat. And I think, you know, I mean, there's there's still body shaming going on in, in for females and, and now even for males, you know, and it's like, well, hang on a minute, you know, just because you're a certain body type doesn't mean you can't do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, it was kind of a lifelong thing of trying to get past that first lady. But I always go back to my mom saying, well, if you can't do it one way, do it a different way. Do it a different you know? way. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And at nine, like I just look back to where I was when I was, you know, nine, it's a very delicate time in a, in a girl's life. Oh. Like that's the, I guess, the awakening of those self-esteem things and you're no longer the carefree child and you start to care about what other people think of you and unfortunately hearing things like that is so detrimental and then it that you'll go back to that nine-year-old girl every time someone says something about you your body oh most definitely and then even when I was swimming you know at an elite level you know the coach would be like you know if you lost a few kilos you could do this or that um even as a rower you know later on in life we had a coach that was like you know you could get fitter maybe drop a few kilos. So you always do go back to that, that nine-year-old who's saying, well, you're no good. Mm. You can't do this because, you know, you're, you're too heavy or too fat. I think I finally got past that. Yeah. Well, well, that's good. And like in a more positive note, I guess it did help you. And we were talking before that your first love was swimming. So how, like, how did that first squat experience go? Cause I was a swimmer myself and I fell in love with it, but I want to hear like how you fell in love with it. Actually, it was, it wasn't so much the training and the the squad swimming. It was my first race that made me fall in love with it. And it was all because of the color of the ribbon. (laughs) And so my first race was 50 freestyle. I did a 50. I think of every, my first meet was 50 of every single stroke, Mm -hmm. even butterfly, even though I could, I would drown when I was doing it, that first one. And my first ribbon, I think I came fifth they, they awarded ribbons down to fifth or down to sixth I think I can't really remember but I remember getting this green ribbon right now you can tell green is my favorite <laughs> it's one of my favorite colors but when I saw the girl who came first got a red ribbon I decided I didn't like the green I wanted the red and the only way I was going to get that red ribbon is if I went and trained really hard and that was the impetus to actually continue training hard because I wanted a red ribbon. <laughs> and seriously, that is what got me right into going, I have to go, I have to go and train because I want that red ribbon next time. Mm-hmm. It took a while to get to that red ribbon, but, um, but that got me into it. And then it became a love of the people I was with. You know, they became not only my friends, but like family. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'm still friends with quite a few of them today, you know, from that, you know, 12 to 15 year old age group. I'm still, you know, they're all in Canada, of course, and mm-hmm. I'm here, but I'm, you know, we still, when I'm, when I'm at home, I've actually caught up with them for dinner and stuff. So it's, it's quite funny, all these, you know, I dare I say 50 years later, mm. oh God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> 50 years later, we're still friends. So it's pretty cool. Oh, that gives me so much hope. It's amazing what what sport can do. Yes. I mean, that was my life. Swimming was my life, Mm -hmm. you know, and and at 15, when I was 
training twice a day. And, you know, the goal was get to the Olympics. That was, that was the only goal. 1980 Olympics, let's get there, let's get there. Um, yeah, so it becomes your life. And, and of course, you're with those people so often, spending so much time of the day with them that, yeah, it's great that you can still be friends all these years. Oh, that's so beautiful. And my squad from back, back when we were all swimming at the same age, you know, age group, you know, 12 to 17, I guess we were, we were all in that little bracket. Um, we caught up last, last month before all the lockdowns happened again in Victoria. And yeah, we've, none of us have swam in years and it was just so beautiful and wholesome to all, you know, go back to that place together. And like the hearing that you are still friends with your, you know, squad mates from 50 years ago, gives me so much hope that maybe we'll be like that too. Cause they are like my, they were my family during that stage. Yep. Definitely. I mean, some of us didn't even go to the same high school, mm-hmm. you know, like some of us did because we trained at the high school that I went to, we actually trained at, um, but others were in other schools and we're still friends. Yeah. You know, and, and I've seen them get married and have children and, you know, their children are now starting to have children, which is really scary. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's pretty cool that sport can do that for you. Mm, definitely, definitely very special. And also, you know, you went from swimming, you would narrowly missed out on the Olympics because Canada boycotted it. Is that right? Yeah. So 1980, the most of the Western world boycotted the Moscow Games. It mm-hmm. was because Russia had invaded Afghanistan. So okay. it was you know, which is kind of ironic because then the U.S. went and did it again themselves. Mm. Now, you know, I, I was at a national level. Whether I would have made the team or not is, who knows? That's, mm. that's you know, that's a moot point. But it was that, that chance to try mm-hmm. was taken away from me by politics. And in fact, Australia and the U.K. were the only two Western countries that um, gave their athletes the option of whether they wanted to go or not because they didn't want sport to be involved with politics and so I thought that was pretty cool that you know Australia said to their athletes right we're having the trials you know like they're on right now um we'll pick the team if you decide you want to go then by all means you can go yeah whereas we we had no we had no say in the matter the U.S. we just followed what they did yeah to be honest and yeah our government just went no they're not going we're not going and then, of course, the, the, you know, four years later, Russia did the same thing with the 84 games in L.A. Well, we're not going because they didn't come to ours. Like, <laughs> so you had two games that were just not your best mm-hmm. people from around the world there. Mm-hmm. So you just hope that that never happens again. Yeah, well, I hope, well, I hope that even this year, like Tokyo 2020 is going to be in 2021 and it's interesting mm. to see what's going to actually unfold from it. Well, they are going, they are going ahead. Yeah. It, it'll just be completely different games um, because of no spectators. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no cheering allowed. Um, there's so many rules for the athletes as well that it's, you can clap, but you can't yell, even though you're wearing a mask, which I, I quite can't understand that one. But I mean, even in the dining hall, they've said, once you take your mask off, you're not, you can eat, but you're not allowed to talk. Oh. Hello. Um, yeah. So there's, it's, it's going to not be like, if it's the first games, it's still be exciting to be going mm-hmm. and to be putting on that green and gold, you know, just to, to say, I'm here representing my country. But if it's not your first games, it's, it's going to be weird. So completely weird and different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's, it's a watch the space, I think. And so oh, definitely. You actually did get to represent Canada in swimming. It wasn't at the Olympics, but was it the Police and Fire Games? Yes, the very first first World Police and Fire Games. Um because I joined the police force. Mm-hmm. Um once 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 the games were like abolished in 80, like we were told nobody's going. Um I thought, well, what do I do now because in those days, if you, if you were a swimmer and a female swimmer and you hadn't actually made it or been a world champion by the time you were 19 or been to an Olympic Games, then they figured you were washed up. Mm-hmm. So there were no women swimming into their 20s or 30s as they are now. 
um, which thank God we've learned that, you know, women get stronger as they get older. Yes. And even after having babies, they can be even better. Um, so it was like, what do I do? So I joined the police force, <laughs> you know, can't swim. So might as well join the police force. Um, but yeah, 1985, they had the very first World Police and Fire Games, which were in San Jose in California. And so I went there. Uh, I thought, well, this is it. This is, you know, this will be my pinnacle of sport that I can represent my country and my force at. Um, and I, they had them every two years. So I went to yeah, 85, 87, 89, 90, and 91, I think. And then I don't think I was at, I can't remember if I was at 93, but 95, they were actually here in, huh. um, in Melbourne. And so even though I had retired from the police force and I, and I was here, um, I actually got a letter from the Toronto police force to say that I was a deferred retiree because I put it off mm -hmm. and I was able to compete. Oh, so awesome. Cool. Yeah. So I was still competing for Canada, but I was living here. So that was, that was pretty cool. I ended up having a welcome Canada party actually at a pub in Fitzroy. <laughs> And I handed flyers out at the, the registration center to every Canadian that I could find, you know, and I think the, the pub was overwhelmed. We had like 400 people show up at this pub <laughs> for this night. And then a whole Russian contingent, the bus pulled up outside and their translator came in and said, oh, we heard there was a party here for the games. Can we come in? So <laughs> Yeah, so it was kind of like being at the games, um, you know, at the at the Olympic Games, but yeah. it was police and fire. So oh, it was, that's it was cool. pretty cool. Yeah. But and... it was through those games that I ended up down here because I met a fire brigade member who was a swimmer mm -hmm. at the very first games. And so he was the only one from the Melbourne Fire Brigade swimming, and I was the only one from the Toronto Police Force swimming. And every other force had these massive teams, especially in the U.S., and uh, so we we just kind of sat together and he invited me back to their big buzzy barbecue and yeah that was a long three days put it that way <laughs> <laughs> typical Aussie party um, yeah and yeah and through that through him I met a whole bunch of um, other people and one couple gave me their business card and said if you ever want to come to Australia come for a visit so six months later I did exactly that I came down for a visit and that was the start of my love affair with this country and yeah quite a quite a few years later I then met my husband on one of my trips down here oh so, that's awesome that's so good and and again there was it was sport that brought me to this country like through sport mm -hmm. I got to this country and through sport which was funny because it was a different sport I was here uh with friends and they said oh come to our football he my friend played football and he said oh come to my my local football game and um yeah met my husband at north q football club oh my gosh time. so was he yeah. a footy player he was the manager for them he was oh. a footy player long 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 time ago yeah um but he hadn't played in ages he was just the manager for the seniors team and yeah, so, you know, got involved in Australian rules football when I got here. <laughs> like a Canadian who knew nothing about football ended up as the head, head trainer running around the field with the guys and, um, and on the committee. So, you know, my whole life has revolved around sport, I guess, in, in one way or another. Oh, that's awesome. And did you keep swimming when you went to Australia? I did. I joined a local master's club and um, in Fitzroy. It was called the Fitzroy Sea Lions. <laughs> And then we joined Fitzroy and Richmond joined together and became the, oh God, Yarra Ruffies um, after the fish, the Ruffy fish. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was on the committee there and it was, it was the Yarra Ruffies uh, and myself that put together the first mega swim. Wow. So oh. there's, there's, there's the join. There's, there's, there's the connection. That oh, there's that's connection. awesome. And so you were married to your husband. Um, you've been swimming a little bit. I think you went to a few World Masters games, didn't you, as a swimmer? Um, I went to 
Yes, but that was after my diagnosis. So I was swimming here oh. as a master's swimmer. Yeah. And um, swimming at Masters Nationals. It was at Masters Nationals in 98 in Hobart when I thought I was going to do really well. And I did really crap. Mm-hmm. And I might as well have been like a rock because I just, I thought I had the flu coming on. And when I got home, I was in bed for about a week. I just could not get out of bed. I felt terrible. And my balance was off. Um, my GP thought I had an inner ear infection, which made sense because I literally was bouncing off walls trying to walk down the hallway. Um, or I'd be walking the dog and I'd fall. Like you oh. just get head spins and I'd just fall down. Um, and then my eyesight started to go. And it was through a local optometrist when I went to see them and have my eyes checked that she just said, oh, look, give me your doctor's name and phone number. Um, because I think if you've got an inner ear infection, it's obviously spread to the optic nerve, which mm-hmm. is why you're having issues with your vision. And she called him and said, um, oh, look, she's got optic neuritis. Maybe you should have her tested for MS because it's a precursor to multiple sclerosis. And the only reason she knew that was because she just graduated from university and it was everything was just in the forefront of her brain. And my GP, he just said, I would have never thought about that in a million years. Mm. He said, because, you know, we just learned so much about everything that there's just no way that I would have put two and two together. So I was very lucky because it was from, I think the nationals were in February and by April. April 28th, 23rd, I had my diagnosis, which wow. is, yeah, very highly unusual. Yes. Oh gosh. And like, I've done a little bit of research and your, um, was it, you went to a neurologist, your GP sent you to a neurologist yeah. and they were, um, less than helpful in, the, in, oh, in their delivery. He was, he was such a lovely man. Not, <laughs> yeah. I thought, like, when I went back, he sent me for a whole bunch of tests. Mm -hmm. The first meeting with him was, oh, yeah, we're just going to send you for MRI and a CAT scan and all this kind of stuff. And so it was pretty quick. And I went, yep, okay, got the referrals, you know, off I went. When I was going back to see him, um, my symptoms were gone. Mm -hmm. So I just figured it was the ear infection because I'd been swimming. It had cleared up, you know, and everything was fine. And I thought, I said to my husband, oh, don't come with me because, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, I just, I'm wasting his time because I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I went and he was really in a hurry. He was like, come on, hurry up, sit down, sit down. And I thought, yeah, I'm wasting his time. This is good. And he pulled the film, which turned out to be my MRI film, big, huge film out. And he held it to the ceiling and he's looking at it. And he says, there's too many lesions on your brain for someone your age. So um, you've got multiple sclerosis and basically your life as you know, it's over. So I'd suggest you go home and put your affairs in order before you become incapacitated. And I'm sitting there and it was like being hit by a bus. Hmm. And that, that whole appointment, I said one word and I just looked at him and I said, what? And he said, oh, you heard me. You've got MS. This silly sports stuff you do, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And you're going to have to quit work and you're going to have to go on a whole bunch of drugs. And to be honest, I don't have time for you as a patient. I've got enough people with MS to deal with. So go back to your own GP. He can look after you. And with that, he put the film back in the envelope and he walked to the door and he opened the door and I'm still sitting in the chair and I'm sure my chin must have been on the floor. Mm. And I'm like, I think the only thing going through my head was that word incapacitated because all of a sudden when you get something when you when when your brain's trying to process something like that you think the worst case scenario you think incapacitated and i'm not going to ever do sport again what does that mean to me and my brain's thinking a million miles an hour and i'm thinking sitting in a wheelchair unable unable to communicate wearing nappies drooling somebody spoon feeding like the worst the worst mm-hmm. thing that you could possibly think about and my life is over and what the hell am I going to do? I'm so far from home. Like all these things. And he's like, hurry up. I've got people waiting, you know? So it it was just a blur. I don't remember driving home that day. I don't even remember if I ever paid the bill. He had the audacity to say to me on the way out, make sure you see my secretary before you leave. Yeah. And I just, 
I walked straight by her office and I just remember as I opened the front door, I remember her saying, Mrs. Cook, Mrs. Cook, your bills. And I just walked out. But I don't remember anything after walking out, even Mm -hmm. to this day, till I was sitting in my living room and I was in tears. And we had a six month old puppy at the time. And she had her head in my lap and she started to whimper and that snapped me out of it. And that's when I went, oh, okay, I've got to make some plans here. Mm -hmm. So I learned one really good lesson that day was never make plans when you've just heard traumatic news because usually your plans are just ridiculously stupid. And yeah, I decided um, I was going to, we just bought a house. We've been in our house for a year and I I just decided I was going to give my husband the house. Um, I was just going to give him a divorce and I was going to go back to Canada so that my family could look after me. I was going to be incapacitated. You know, and luckily Russ is pretty calm. Like we never had an argument because he refuses to argue. So he's like one of these, he'll never die of stress because Mm. the stress levels are down here where mine might get up here. His are down here. And when I told him what this guy had said and the, I said, now, before you say anything, I want to, you know, the decisions I've made. And I told him, and I'm, I'm sorry for those listening who don't like swearing, but he looked at me and he called me a fucking idiot. <laughs> and I said, hang on, haven't you heard what this doctor said? And he goes, well, he's a bigger one. You know, and he said, look, we know nothing about MS. We, we, how does he know? Look at you, you're fine. Like, how does he know you're going to be incapacitated? And what does that mean anyway? He said, so we need to find out more about it. We need, we can't make decisions. And he said, and besides, you don't have it, we have it, we'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of people who've been diagnosed with MS, whose partners have gone, right, see you later, out the door. Oh. You know, because it's all too hard. It's all too hard. And I can understand that, you know, it took me probably a real good year to come to terms with the fact that I was no longer classified as healthy. Mm. You know, I had a chronic illness now. And, you know, what was going to happen? And, and it's like a grieving process where you, you go through until you've come to that acceptance point where you say, right, okay, I have MS, but it's not who I am. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of me. And I refuse to be dictated. It's not going to dictate what I do in my life. You know, I can live with it. Might have to do things a bit differently, um, but we'll get there, mm-hmm. you know, and luckily I had Russ behind me to say, yeah, we will get there, you know? So, yeah. So we got there with not, not to say that life has been rosy all the way through, but you know, we, we've got through the hard times and the crappy times. And unfortunately with MS, it doesn't mean you can't get anything else. So I've had some ups and downs in life Mm -hmm. and you just, I think being diagnosed with a chronic illness and dealing with that when you get another bad diagnosis you just kind of go right okay what are we going to do about it mm. and that specialist will look at you like aren't you upset <laughs> so, well yeah but like what are we going to do about it <laughs> you know yeah so in in the end I always I always say to people I would never change my diagnosis and I probably would never change the way it was given to me because it was like waving a red flag to a bull Mm. you know and don't tell me what I can and can't do I'll figure out what I can and can't do and again my mom's old lesson was if you can't do something one way think about how you can do it another yeah it's it's given me opportunities I never would have had yeah Paralympian it all of a sudden gave me that that seven-year-old who wanted to represent her country at the Olympics all of a sudden I was a 50 year old who wanted to represent her new country at a Paralympics, you know, it might not have been in gymnastics or swimming, but you know, it was in rowing or cycling. Oh gosh. Why would I change it? No. Yeah. Well, and it's not who you are as a person, but it's showed strength in you and it allowed strength in you to come out and develop. And then, you you know, three time Paralympic gold medalist and nine time world champion, like that's, something that not many people can say that they've done in their lifetime so yeah it's definitely pretty special and it's not something I thought I would ever say about myself you know um 
so getting back to your original question about the World Masters Games, God, that was a while ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, I went to my, I think, I think it was my first World Masters Games day in 2005. Mm -hmm. They had the first time ever they had para classifications in swimming and athletics. And so I thought, oh, wow, maybe I could, I wonder if I would classify as a para swimmer. And I did, I classified as an S10. Yep. And so I was able to go to the World Masters Games as an S10. And it was through those games, the World Masters Games, that I ended up um, on the radar of Paralympics Australia, who when I got back, because I'd done so well, sent me an email. It was actually Tim Matthews from Paralympics Australia who sent me an email saying, oh, would you like to come to a talent search day? Um, now, talent search days are usually for kids, you know, for the future and early 20s and I emailed him back and I said do you have any idea how old I am and he goes nope but you come anyway I was 45 at the time and I think I was that day I was 24 years older than the oldest person doing the, the come try day, the oh, talent wow. <laughs> it, was, it was quite funny um yeah going and and doing all the testing with the kids as I called them yeah but yeah it was, it was through that testing day um, they asked me to take up the sport of rowing because it was a brand new um, event or a brand new sport in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And it was, yeah, through then that I found a club. It took me a while to find a club because I made the mistake of ringing different clubs and saying, oh, I have a slight disability. And it was like that word disability was not, can't do anything for you. We're not, we don't cater, we can't cater for disability well, you haven't even asked me what it is. Mm. Um, yeah. And I finally found a club that said, oh yeah, can you get into a boat? And I said, yep, I can probably get in. I might not be able to get out. They said, oh, <laughs> we can help you out. I said, okay, fine. You know, and they were great. Oh. Fantastic. So I just went there and did a row course and yeah, and started rowing with them. Wow. So it was great. What was it like having, you know, you've grown up swimming so you've got, you know, a little bit of experience as to, you know, the, the feel of the water, but it's no longer you using your hands to make your way through the water. It's using the the oars and the paddles and I don't know what the correct rowing term is. Um, no, but, right. but how did you feel like having to transfer over to a different sport? I think it was just, I don't think I really at that point had any grand plan of, oh yeah, I'm going to make it to the Paralympics. It was because it was a new sport at the beginning. It was just, oh my God, this is so different. It mm. was just, it was, I love learning new things and it was, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, I've, I've seen Canada has a big rower rowing um, history as well. And even near where I grew up, they had a couple of rowing clubs, um, but it was always that private school, like it is here. It was that private school um, sport. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you always led to believe that, oh, well, I guess I can't do that. Um, it was never on the radar. But all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, this might be cool to learn. And because I'd never been um, in team sports, all of a sudden now I was thrown into a team sport, you know, with a double or a four or an eight. Um, and I loved it. I loved the fact that, you know, with rowing, especially in, in a bigger boat, everybody had to be spot on in their precision with each other. And to me, that was just really cool to try and, you know, when you can get, you can get a, a, a crew boat up and running and everybody's got their timing spot on. The feeling is just amazing. Mm. And you know, the speed you can get some of those boats going is just fantastic, you know, and I'd never been involved in a team sport. I wasn't, I wasn't really good um, with any kind of ball sport, like my coordination, my coordination is really bad. And, and that could have been the MS even way back then, um, because it can issues with coordination, because I, you know, basketball and volleyball and baseball oh my god don't even get me started with baseball it was <laughs> terrible you know whereas my sister was amazing amazing volleyball and basketball player but I just just the eye-hand coordination wasn't there so it was always involved in individual sports but now all of a sudden I was on a team and I just 
I just love it. I, I, and I kept rowing actually right through until 2014. So I was doing both sports um, up until 2014. And I finally had to give it up because it was just too hard to put the hours in for both sports mm-hmm. that was required, you know, individually. Oh, yeah. wow. Gosh. And then, so you, you just missed out for Beijing, you, the team just missed out by, you know, under a second. And then you were like, yeah. Was it, was it then you were going, okay, I need to think outside of the box and find another way to make my seven-year-old Olympic dream? No, not at all. I, um, funny enough, after we were in Munich at the World Cup to qualify, there was only three spots left because most in rowing, um, most of the spots qualified a year before mm-hmm. an Olympic or Paralympic event um, at the World Championships, but they always leave three extra spots um, for qualification the, the, the next year, just before the games. So we missed out by 0.8 of a second. And I just thought, yeah, I can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. Here you are 47 years old. What are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm in my head saying, oh, don't be so stupid. You're 47. What are you doing? And I'd been writing a blog about our journey um, to Beijing. Mm-hmm. And look, the, the five of us, so the coxswain and the four rowers, we had no thought at all of not making it. Like mm-hmm. we just assumed we would, we would get there. Like that wasn't, it was not on our radar to fail. And when we did, I just thought, oh, this is crazy. Like grow up, move on. And so I wrote my final blog on it saying, apologizing, funny enough, apologizing to the readers that I wasn't able to fulfill, um, you know, reach our destination. I wasn't able to write to that final Beijing destination. And it was my sister the following day through cyberspace gave me a real kick up the ass and said, well, do you like rowing? And I said, yeah, I love rowing. She said, well, why would you stop? Don't, she said, and, and she was so right. She said, destinations in life change. Mm. It's all about the journey, you know? And she says, you've taken us on such an amazing journey with this blog. I've loved reading every week about what you guys have been doing. She says, but just because you're not getting to Beijing doesn't mean that there's a, not a different destination in the future. She said, I don't care about the destination. I just want to hear about your rowing journey. And she said, why don't you just keep rowing? Like, if you like it, mm. just keep doing it. And don't worry about what might happen in the future. And it's like, I kind of went, oh, little sisters do have good points sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, I've got one myself. Yes, they're, they're correct a lot of the time, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not that you ever want to believe it. But she just, you know, she just put that into my head. And I thought, well, yeah, why don't I just row? Because I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm trying to get to a certain point. And, you know, I've taken that into my cycling as well, because it's not about it's not about the time you want to do at the end of the race. It's the process through the race. And it's the process of getting to a games. It's the process, not the final finishing goal. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if you focus on that final goal, you're never going to get there without focusing on the process. So, so I did, I just kept rowing because I enjoyed it. And funny enough, made the team the following year, uh, a different crew and for the world championships. And we ended up making the final, which nobody thought we would because we were so raw. We hadn't, because we're from all over the country, mm. they, hadn't put in, they hadn't put money into getting us together for camps and whatnot. We actually did our own camp at one point. And yeah, and we ended up sixth, even though the coach was, wasn't, interest, wasn't really interested in our crew. And even the night before our final, he pulled us all together and said, Oh, you should just be happy you made it to a final. Oh. That was his pep talk. That was his pep talk. Um, yeah, you should be happy you made it here. I didn't think you'd even make it to a final. And that was it. And I'm like, I called everybody. I called a meeting, a meeting in my room in 10 minutes. <laughs> so we sat down there. And I said, I don't know about any of you, but I didn't come here just to make the final and just go in and give up. I said, anything can happen. You know, we've beat, we've been through heats, repetitions, and we've made the so we beat a whole bunch of crews. Mm. Doesn't mean we're, you know, this is where we end it. As it was, we had the worst row possible. <laughs> like the worst row ever. And um, yeah, it came sixth out of six in the final. Yeah. But we were sixth in the world. 
Hmm. You know, we'd gone through all those stages and we were six in the world. And I think we all kind of thought after we got over the disappointment of how bad our row was, um, you know, we thought, wow, think about what we could do with three years of training together as a crew, mm-hmm. you know, con- considering we haven't, we've had about three weeks total. Um, think about what we could do if we trained more regularly. And so it was like, great, we'll focus. It's only three years to London. We'll just focus on that. And a year later, that kind of went out the window when they just dropped our crew. They said, no, we're not interested in the four. Um, we're going to concentrate more on the other two classes. And yeah. Oh. yeah, it came up with all kinds of excuses. It was basically the coach who just wasn't interested yeah. and giving feedback to the hierarchy that was just so wrong that it was really sad. And I fought that and fought that and fought that for, that was 2010. We got invited to trials for world championships and then we got uninvited. Never in the history, I think, has that ever happened, but it happened to us. And I fought for the next four years to try and get that crew up and going again. Um, You know, a a four to just include that in the program. And then finally it was like 2014, it was like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. But yeah. I'd taken up cycling in the meantime well, because that's... of one of the because of one of the crew members. So Alex Lin- Lisney, as she's now, um, she there was a, a, in rowing in para rowing, the four is comprised of two men and two women, so it's a mixed category. And so Alex and I were uh, the two women in in the boat, and um, she switched to track cycling, and she called me one day. I guess it was like January, 2011. She goes, Carol, there's like um, a trike category at the Paralympics on the road. And I'm like, really? And I had a really, I had a trike made here in Melbourne that was 22 kilos in a steel frame just to ride back and forth from home to to rowing. (laughs) To training, yeah. Yeah, a bit of cross training. And, um, And I went, really? no they and sure enough there was she goes oh you should come up to nationals in april up in up in um, queensland and i'm like i know nothing about cycle racing i've done a few triathlons but cycle racing i don't know anything about that and um she says oh that's all right just come up anyway so i did and uh i remember that first day driving around the course with her and it was around the glasshouse mountains the road course and there were so many hills and big hills (laughs) and I looked at her and I said oh my god this is going to be so embarrassing when I have to get off this 22 kilo steel frame trike and walk up these hills (laughs) goes you she says I'm on two wheels I think I'm going to have to get off and walk up as well neither one of us did have to walk up I might add let's put a caveat there um but that was the start of yeah that was the start 2011 was the April start of my cycling career. Oh my gosh. And that's an amazing start. And then you've got 2012, you went to the London Paralympics and you were in the mixed T1 and T2 road time trial. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And they actually had that as in like the men was versing the women. Like how did that go? Um, that was very interesting. It was the only category where they mixed genders. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling it was probably the only event. I can't think of any other event where, other than rowing, where you're in the boat together, mm-hmm. but where we had to compete against them. So because there weren't enough women to hold our own race um, around the world, I think there was probably five or six of us. And mm-hmm. they said that was too few. Um, and they didn't think every country would, would send them. So they mixed them. And so in cycling, so that the, the numbers after the letter, so the lower the number, mm-hmm. the more disabled. So T obviously is for trike. Um, C is for cycle, uh, for two wheels, like mm-hmm. a cycle, a normal bike. Um, H is for hand bike. And B is the tandem for the vision impaired. So T1 and T2, there's the only T categories. They decided they were going to put them all together, men and women, but they would factor them. So it's like a handicapping system. So I think the T2 men, it was 100% of their time. Yeah. Right. Then I think the T2 
women, we were 86% of their 100%, the factor would be. And the T1 men were about 83, and I think the T1 women were 81. Yep. Uh, how they worked them out at the beginning, I have no <laughs> idea. But they threw us all together. So to be honest, um, when we were, because the time trial, you go off one minute apart, and, you know, there were people behind me. You just ride your heart out basically mm -hmm. I, I love the time trial because I think it's such a pure race it's you against the clock there's no, no strategy tactics there's mm. you know, there's no silly games being played with tactics and people going here and there and the time trial the only race that was factored so we actually had to do the road race as well with the men mm -hmm. but it wasn't factored so just across who was first first second third across the line with men and women so you knew you knew you were not going to medal mm -hmm. unless you're a really 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 strong woman you knew you were not going to medal in the road race because the men were just too strong and but the time trial you, you know you had a chance um but i hadn't we i'd never i'd never been tested against the men we'd never had a race like this anywhere else you know i'd been to world cups and other races and i and i'd done well i you know there was a canadian girl uh, marie eve who uh, had beat me at the world championships in 2011 that was funny because our head coach, when he saw me race at nationals, had said, oh, you are the fastest T2 woman I've ever seen in the world. And so when we went to world championships in 2011, because he had said this, I just assumed, well, I should win then if I'm the fastest in the world. And yeah, I think Marie was told the same thing, except she was the fastest in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and she beat me uh, in both races, the, t the time trial and the road. Um, but come Paralympics, I was a year more under my belt. I also got rid of my 22 kilo steel frame trike and was now on a 15 kilo trike. I'd lost almost 20 kilos. I think it was 15 or 20 kilos. So it was a lot lighter and a lot quicker and had more experience in that year. Um, but because Marie Eve was world champion and Hans Peter Durst from Germany was world champion, the two of them started last. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, so they get to be the, the chasers and, you know, you're just the rabbit trying to stay away um, from, from the pack of dogs. <laughs> and so even after I'd finished, I had no idea where I'd placed. And I was, I remember being, it was on a, um, at Brands Hatch, which is a car race circuit. And so we had, you know one of the the bays where the car race cars would normally be and I was cooling down and we had a media lady um, Jenny Shear who was looking at her phone because we couldn't hear the loudspeaker outside and all I knew is that I had given it 150 percent and I had raced my heart out to the point where our physio thank god for trikes because they don't fall over our physio had had to physically roll me back I couldn't pedal. I, I literally just given so much. I was just spent. Mm -hmm. She rolled, rolled me back to um, our bay and they got me off the trike and I sat down for a few minutes. Then I got on the, the cool down bike, stationary bike. And um, Jenny's sitting there with her phone and she's looking at real time results and she's going, Oh, I think, I think you've got this. And I'm like, putting my hand up saying, stop. I want to hear it on the speaker. Like, I don't trust anything. Like, I just don't want to, hear, I just want to cool down. And it was about 10 minutes later, because there were still people out on the course and you just don't know what's going to happen. And um, I remember the um, head coach of Great Britain came walking into our bay and walked straight up to me and stuck his hand out. And I said, hello. He goes, oh, hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so, the head coach of Great Britain. He says, congratulations. I said, for what? And he goes, oh, you just won. Oh, gosh. And I looked, at, I looked at Jenny and she just looked at me and she goes, oh, my God, I've been trying to tell you for 10 minutes. <laughs> and I burst into tears. <laughs> um, but I found out later that Marie Eve had not raced. And I'd seen her there and I asked her afterwards, I said, why, why didn't you race? And it turns out that she had had a crash um, before in Canada, before they'd arrived in London. And because she'd really hit her head badly, they wouldn't clear her medically oh. um, because she had concussion to actually race. So it was one of those, it was kind of a bittersweet win because mm. 
you know, she'd beat me the year before and it was, it played on my mind after the euphoric, you know, win and, and the fact you get your medal, you know, I'm lying in bed that night going, if she'd actually raced, would, would, I, I, actually, would I be holding this medal? Um, so I guess that was my real driving force for the following year at world championships because they were in Canada and because I knew she'd be racing. Can I prove that I deserve to win this? And that was by beating her, which, which I ended up doing. And we had a great tussle for a number of years back and forth, her and I, which, and she's still racing, which is, which has been great. Oh, so, awesome. Is she going to um, be at Tokyo? <laughs> don't know. I don't know how many spots Canada has. Um, I know that just at the world championships this past weekend, which we weren't at, I know that she came fourth in the time trial. Like we've got some really fast girls now. Mm. Um, women, they're not girls. Well, they're all young. <laughs> they're girls to me. Um, but, you know, some really fast women happening now and uh, a couple from the US and a couple from Germany and Marie Eve. And we've got now a new girl from the Netherlands who have never ever met or, or seen and an, a new girl from Greece as well. So there, you know, the, the stocks are building um, and there's people that aren't there because of the pandemic, mm. you know? So um, it'll be interesting to see who is actually in Tokyo. Yeah. yeah and, they- and I'm just, just so, you know, after watching the results this weekend, I've been just looking at them every day <laughs> and just kind of going right going on Tokyo because yeah. I want to prove something here <laughs> you've got something the, the seven-year-old is back and you've got something oh, to the, prove <laughs> the seven-year-old is definitely back it's like yeah get me in there yeah <laughs> oh that's amazing and is there like a moment because we've I've asked you about the swimming but is there a moment you really fell in love with cycling yeah I, I don't know I've 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 enjoyed it from the start even mm. from the start of it's funny I've had people ask me which is my favorite sport and they're all so different but I I I love cycling because it's my social life you know as well because not only can you train and train hard but you can train with other people yeah and you can have somebody beside you chatting away to you Um, I've got some great friends who come and help me on really hard sessions you know like today I had a girlfriend who rode with me and I had three times 30 minute of you know efforts to do and so she was there for all three of them. I've got another girl that when they're higher, even harder efforts at 20 minutes, she'll sit behind me and we'll be going down beach road. Mm-hmm. And I won't even have to look to see if I can get around a car because she's my gatekeeper. She'll say, you're clear, you're clear as we're going. Um, and she's so strong that she's able to just have a nice, fairly easy ride for her. And I'm working my guts out <laughs> and, you know, some really good friends who help me but it's a real social thing I find yeah whereas with rowing it's kind of it's the concentration rowing is probably the hardest sport I've ever done ever because the con you have to concentrate on everything especially when you're with a, a, a crew mm. and you got to make sure that your timing is right and there's no stopping there's there's no resting you know your arms your legs your brain everything's working together whereas in cycling yeah, your brain and your legs are working, but your arms are resting. Mm. Swimming, you know, you can just kind of be off with the fairies. Um, you know, I love swimming. In saying that, I haven't had a proper swim session in over a year. So I'd probably drown right now. <laughs> but I just love the feeling of getting in the water and swimming. You know, it's just that silence. It, mm-hmm. it removes you from the stress. I find swimming just removes you from the stresses of life. You don't have to worry about anything other than following that black line in the pool and just making sure you turn at the wall. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a whole other world. Whereas with the other two, you still have to use your brain and you still have to, you know, kind of, like I said, rowing is probably the hardest sport ever um, just in getting the timing and, and the completeness of it with your whole body. Yeah. And cycling is my social outlet. So yeah. I don't think there's, you know, really one moment in time that I fell in love with it I've just really enjoyed it from the start I even I even you know when I was riding back and forth to rowing training even that was great like I just enjoyed it mm-hmm. you know even though I look silly on three wheels <laughs> no. it's like a little kid little kids trike on steroids you know to be big but if I worried about what I look like then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing 
I still get stupid comments from stupid men writing about the trike, but yeah. You should just throw, you should throw back, um, are you a world champion? (laughs) Oh, sometimes I don't, I, I'm at that point where I don't say anything. I've got friends who just go right off and, and say stuff like that. And I go, don't worry about it. Like they're not worth it. Mm. Just let them think what they want, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but then there's others that I get to try riding the trike Mm -hmm. and not as easy as everybody thinks. (laughs) yes it's like yeah they struggle a little bit and you're like yes see I am better (laughs) yeah they struggle a lot it's quite different and and that's why I let like people from my club if we're Mm -hmm. somewhere before a crit race or something I go get on and try it and it's like they go they can't ride it they're like wow it is just so different Mm -hmm. but it keeps me going it keeps me upright yeah no I like that and it's good that yeah. you're able to do that. And my fiance, he's a cyclist. So he's got a lot of experience on the road bike and everything like that. And one time I jumped on, I think it was one of his dad's bikes and I like <laughs> fell off straight away because it's such a different feel to, you know, your standard mountain bike and every bike is different. Even his mountain bike's different. And yeah, so yeah, I could imagine. Definitely. But riding the trike, it's completely opposite to everything, you know, on two wheels, mm-hmm. you know? It rides the camber of the road. So even the tiniest little bit of camber, you're counterbalancing because you feel like you're going to flip over. Whereas on two wheels, you ride straight up and down. You don't feel the camber of the road. Mm. So you're going around a corner, say, to go right and the camber's off to the left. That's the hardest. Like when it's Mm. off camber, that's the hardest because the bike wants to flip to the left and you're trying to get it to turn right. Um, When you go around a corner, like you have to turn the handlebars, you know, you don't lean the trike because it's fixed at the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're going around a corner, your inside knee is always up on two wheels on the trike. It's straight down because you hang off the side of the trike to get the lean. Wow. So the trike doesn't lean, you do. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's just so many different nuances with it that People just, I, I, I laugh because I, I remember I was at Phillip Island for a time trial once and I was warming up and the juniors had been out before us and one of them had crashed. And of course his dad had gone down and picked up his bike and they were walking back and they saw me and his dad goes, yeah, I'm going to end up putting you on one of these because you keep crashing. And I just thought, you have no idea, no idea. Oh. You know? So they, they think, yeah, because it's a trike and three wheels that it's easy to ride but, but it's yeah. not yeah it's completely different. it's not and they've probably given the hardest thing to ride to the people with the least amount of balance well with no balance because you have to counterbalance <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> oh dear and so my next question is any significant milestones wins losses or injuries we've been through a lot I think we've got up to um just before Rio but is there anything that before that that really like stands like stands out to you my first crash mm-hmm. and funny enough I was riding the road today it was the Yarra Boulevard in Kew and there's I don't know if you know it but there's a really big downhill from the eastern freeway as you're going towards Walmer it's a big downhill and a 180 degree turn as you're going downhill and so I was doing this time trial and I wasn't this was just the week before I was heading to France for a pre-departure camp for London in 2012 and it was August 5th because it was the day before my birthday. And <laughs> I remember doing this time trial. I was going downhill. I wasn't really good at cornering at the time. And I'm trying to go around this 180 degree turn. And I kind of lost it. And I was heading to the wrong side of the road. Mm-hmm. And I, I was worried about there's what they call Copenhagen lanes, like bike lanes on the side of the road at that point with a little like raised curb that mm-hmm. separates them and I was heading towards the curb and I thought oh I can't hit the curb I'm gonna flip and I hit the brakes and I hit the front brake just a little bit too hard and I went straight over the handlebars <laughs> my cleats didn't come out of my pedals so the trike came with me oh no and I flipped and I slid with the trike but still attached to my feet I slid down the road the side of my helmet and I because I'd landed on my hip and my chest basically um now the road was still open to cars so here I am I'm tied up in this mess on the wrong side of the road on the ground 
and I'm freaking out because I'm thinking I got to get off this road mm-hmm. but I'm thinking oh my god London's gone because it was I was a week away from flying out I felt like I'd I thought I'd broken my hip and I'd hit my chest so I was r- out of breath and I'm mm-hmm. thinking, oh my god I've broken ribs and I, I'm trying to get my feet out of, feet out of my pedal it must have been a really terrible funny look all of a sudden I hear, and so I'm off the side of the road and I'm trying to get my chains jammed into my, my uh, bike and trying to get the chain back on and I'm covered in grease now and I'm hurting like, like get out and I hear this, Carol, do you need some help? To this day, I have no idea who this man was, but he knew me. So I must've known him. <laughs> it's gone from my mind. And there were two women with him. And I'm like, I just need to get the chain back on. The adrenaline must have been just so hyped up in me. I just got to get it. I got to finish this race. And one of the ladies goes, do you think that's wise? And I just turned to her and I looked at her and I said, of course, I think it's wise. I just got to finish this race. So he says, just relax. Let's get you off the road. Let's get the, and he got the chain back on. And to his credit, he followed me all the way to the finish. Oh, I went very slowly because I could barely pedal. My hip was just killing me. And honest to God, the bruise on my hip was probably the worst. It covered my whole hip and down into the top part of my thigh. It was black. And of course, I have a blood disorder as well. So I'm on blood thinners. And I probably should have gone to the hospital right then and there. But I didn't. Because the next day I was having a going away party on my birthday at our local pub. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I just thought, oh, well, just suck it up. And I waited until the, you know, the Monday and I went to the Institute of Sport doctor and turned out I had cracked, cracked the third rib and just badly bruised my hip. But I thought, well, that's it. You know, my games is over. And I was scared to actually get back on the trike Mm. and the coaching staff were amazing and we, we ended up in France um, for our camp and there was a, one of our mechanics, Dan, um, came from Sydney and he was incredible. He went out with me every day. I was scared to go downhill mm-hmm. and he went out with me every single day until I could actually ride downhill and yeah, I owe him a debt of gratitude because the London course was so hilly that <laughs> I really had to learn to go back downhill because there were some huge downhills on it and U-turns. And it was like, if I don't, if I don't get past this, like, you know, so that was a huge, huge learning curve. I thought, what am I doing? I'm like 51 years old here and I'm crashing and I'm still going to race. Like, this is crazy, but yeah, you get past it and you go, yes, okay, now I'm ready to go again. Yeah. You know? That was that was the one thing that really stands out other than making my game, making the team. Yeah. And you know, it was you you think that you know, in, you have this dream as a kid and it only took, you know, 42 years to come true, but it came true. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even the fact, like I always say to everybody I'm talking to, I hold up my medal from those games and I say, do you think this is success? And everybody will put their hand up and say, of course it's success. And I say, no, no, the success was getting there Mm. at 51 to make my first games team. That was the success. The success was number one, getting there. Number two, leaving no stone unturned and making sure I did the best job that I could possibly do and know that I had given it my all that day. And no matter what happened, I was successful because I'd done that. Mm -hmm. The medal was the icing on the cake because if somebody else had done the same thing and been faster, then, you know, doesn't mean I wasn't successful. It just Mm -hmm. means that somebody on the day was, I could have been dead last, but would have just meant somebody else was, you know, the others were faster than me just happened to be lucky enough that you know with the factoring in place yeah I came out on top but that was just yeah, like I said say to kids icing is no cake's no good without icing <laughs> and you know, so that was the icing on the cake oh that's amazing and, and you know you went on to become in 2013 dual world champ and then 2016 you went to the Rio Paralympics and got two goals so one in the road 
and one in the time trial, which is incredible. Yeah. And then 2017. Well, we didn't have to race the men. We didn't have to race the men in 2016. Thank in the road race. <laughs> or, or the time trial. So we had enough women to have our own races, which was really good. Oh, that's amazing. And the evolution of the sport in that four years, like you, you've, you know, generated exposure for the sport and maybe seen that other people now coming into it. And you were talking before about the fact that the depth of the field at world champs was so deep that, you know, we don't know what's going to come up for Tokyo, which is really exciting for the the whole sport in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, it will be interesting to see, and it's very hard to see what, you know, countries have to pick and choose who they want to send. Mm -hmm. So it'll be very interesting to see who is there mm -hmm. and who's on the team. Um, and I hope that, you know, all of them, I hope all of them get picked and I hope all of them get there because um, that just makes the racing, you know, more fun and, and, and real. And yeah, let's see what we can do against the rest of the world, the best in the world. Yeah. You know, Paralympics are such a different, there's such a big step up from any other competition, even world champs. Mm -hmm. People tend to completely, you know, find that extra little gear, no pun intended there, but <laughs> just to give that little bit extra at a games and games times. So that's, that's really what's different about them is that, you know, you can be a world champion, but you can get to a games and yeah, somebody just pulls something out of the bag that you just didn't think they would ever have. Yeah. So it's just different. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sport with Fiona Stewart. This is a completely independent podcast that has been created to share the journey and lessons of top-level sporting professionals, but also your everyday lover of sport. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review and share it with someone who you think would also enjoy it. Until next time.